Welcome to the podcast of Christ Church in Town in Jacksonville, Florida. We are seeking the renewal of all things in Jesus Christ. Towards that end, we are committed to cultivating personal transformation in Christ, an uncommon fellowship of racially and economically diverse individuals, and the flourishing of our neighbors. To join our local body in membership or financial support, visit ChristChurchInTown.org. Our scripture reading today comes from Exodus chapter 1, verses 1 through 22. There are the names of the sons of Israel. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. Reuben, Simeon, Levi and Judah, Issachar, Zebulon, and Benjamin, Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply, and, if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh's store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of, king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Pua, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives and the people multiplied and grew very strong. Because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded to all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. This is the word of the Lord. It's absolutely true, and it's given to us in love. Thanks so much, Haley. Well, friends, uh, as we've uh, alluded to in our prayers, uh, as we've been alluding to for some time now, uh, we are all going through a lot right now confessed in the prayer that I'm exhausted, that I feel tired and confused, that there's times in this uh, between coronavirus, between uh, the political uh, season that we're in, between the ongoing uh, work for justice, uh, as well as the unfortunate uh, and tragic uh, scenes of violence and death uh, in our streets, uh, that we are all going through a ton right now. 
And it's good just to acknowledge that um, because sometimes you can feel crazy, right? Sometimes you go, man, why am I so exhausted? Why am I so afraid? Why am I so short with my loved ones? Why do I feel on the verge of depression? And it's worth just acknowledging that we are going through something uh, right now that is pulling at us, that is uh, wearing us down. And so how do we live with clarity and with purpose in a world torn by chaos and evil? How do we find our way, our calling, to live lives of clarity and purpose, to to love God and to love our neighbors, when around us so much seems so confusing and so chaotic, even so evil? How do we find our way through this? It feels a bit right now like we're in a story, not just uh, watching a movie, but actually in the movie itself. And yet uh, we can't quite sometimes uh, figure out what the plot of the story that we're in is. I don't know how many people that I've had this conversation with recently. What is God doing in the midst of this? How is this going to turn out? In the end, is there any reason for hope or optimism? It's like being in a story, but not being aware of the plot, not being uh, assured of its ending. And if we don't know the plot, how can we know our role in the story? And if we don't know our role as characters in the story, then how do we even figure out what to do when we get out of bed in the morning to find purpose in it? Well, the book of Exodus in the Bible, uh, in so many ways, functions as the plot line, right? That it is a story for us when we can't remember the plot of our story. Because Exodus is the primary framing story in the story of the Bible. It's the story in the Old Testament where Israel, the Old Testament people of God, learned who God was and who they were to be as his people where they first got to know his grace and his redeeming power, bringing them out of slavery in Egypt, through the wilderness and towards their glorious inheritance in the promised land. When the biblical authors use words like salvation and redemption, they are talking about Exodus. When they say salvation, they mean salvation like happened in Exodus. When the Old Testament prophets Uh, stared down the exile to Babylon, their hope was in a new exodus, that God would set his people free again and bring them back to their inheritance. They look forward to a new exodus. And then in the New Testament, when the authors of the New Testament and even Jesus himself uh, explain his work, they use exodus language to do it. There's this, uh, this story that's easy to miss in the New Testament Uh, In Luke chapter 9, it's a story that may be well known. It's the story of Jesus' transfiguration. That strange story where Jesus goes up onto a mountain. And and, and there with him appear Moses, the great uh, human hero of Exodus, and Elijah, the great prophet of Israel. And they're there talking to one another. And Jesus is transformed into a more glorious and glowing appearance. And here's how Luke describes it. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, 
who appeared in glory and spoke of his... Now, the ESV, the, the translation that we typically use, says that they appeared in glory and spoke of his departure. But the word there really is they spoke of his exodus. That when Jesus, in this supernatural scene, met with Moses and Elijah, what they talked about was Jesus' exodus that he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Imagine what that conversation must have been like. Moses, the leader of the first exodus, and Jesus, who was about to achieve the greater exodus of slavery, not just from the land of Egypt, but from all of the powers of sin and suffering and death and evil. They discussed the exodus together. And so, friends, what we're going to see is that the Exodus story is our story. That through and through, Israel's rescue from slavery in Egypt by Moses is our story of rescue from slavery to sin and evil and it's all of its powers by the hand of Jesus. And so, in a world where we have trouble following the plot and remembering our story, Exodus is a rehearsal of our story. It reminds us of our story. It reminds us of where we've been and where God is taking us and what he's up to in the brokenness of this world. Our lives feel so small at times, so hard to discern. It can be so hard to feel like in the midst of this world that our lives really matter at all in the grand scheme of things. We can feel at times impotent to really affect the world around us, especially when such large forces swirl. And so I want to focus today and draw your attention to two little characters, uh, two characters who do seem insignificant compared to the larger story. These two relatively minor characters introduced to us as Shifra and Pua, two Hebrew midwives who come into our story there in the last paragraph, called uh, before Pharaoh and asked to do something evil and unconscionable. And yet these two women find what we started out talking about, their own sense of clarity and purpose and calling in the midst of a world that was torn by chaos and evil. They find a way to live out their calling as God's daughters in the midst of this chaotic world. You could hardly be more insignificant in the land of Egypt than Shipra and Pua. They were, to start off with, Hebrews, Israelites, and not Egyptians. Right? They were, they were foreigners. They were exiles uh, there in the land of Egypt. They were women and not men in a world where men possessed most of the cultural power and leadership. They were not mothers themselves, but were midwives in a world that, that uh, associated most of a woman's value with her childbearing. And so here are these two women, enslaved women without children of their own, who would have been at the very bottom rung of the social ladder, standing up to Pharaoh himself standing up to the very human embodiment of evil and chaos in their world. And instead, remembering their plot, remembering their God, remembering their story, 
and finding their place in it. My hope is that God will help us to do the same in our day. And so the story that these two women find themselves in, the story in which we find our life, is one that we've talked about often uh, on Sundays here at this church. It's the story of creation, fall, and redemption. Right? It's the story of the world, created good, created for life with one another and life with God in fellowship and in community, life in our callings, fallen then into sin and chaos, and then redeemed by God. But the story starts with an awareness that we are created for abundant life with God and with one another. Look at this in the very first verses uh, of our story. The story starts with basically a rehash of the end of the book of Genesis. Right? It starts with the author reminding you that Exodus isn't its own story, but that it's a chapter in a larger story. And so the author reminds us of when Joseph came down to Egypt, called, or sold there into slavery, and yet flourishing. God used his grace Uh, God gave him grace. God used his wisdom to actually save the nation of Israel from famine. Then God brought all of his family down there with him into Egypt. And so having caught us up, the author then says, Then Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. This is Genesis language, right? This is almost a word-for-word rehash of what God commanded Adam and Eve to do, to be fruitful and to multiply, to fill the earth and to subdue it, right? Our calling as human beings, what it means to be an image bearer of God is to be fruitful. It's to abound in all of our humanity. It's to bear his image, to, to relate to one another in love, to pursue our callings, to to make the world more just and beautiful, to live out our lives with him in an abundant, multiplying way. And this Israel was able to experience even as homeless wanderers in Egypt, right? That that, That Egypt as a nation at this point was treating Israel justly, right? A just nation, the role of a state, is to do justice, right? It's to see that everyone living within its bounds is given their due, that they're able to pursue uh, life and family and calling and able to grow to the fullness of their God-given created potential, right? And for a season, Egypt, even though it didn't belong to Israel, treated them with justice and allowed their creation life to thrive allowed their covenant life with God to grow and to thrive. It's important to remember that Israel ended up in Egypt, not because of their own sin, right? Exodus is going to have plenty to say about Israel's sin, right? We're going to get to the golden calf. Uh, We're going to get to their constant grumbling against God, right? But they did not end up in Egypt because of sin. Right? They ended up in Babylon, and the exile is punishment for sin. But God, we're told, sent them to Egypt. 
We read in Genesis chapter 46, God says to Jacob, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again. And Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. Right, his promise to them was, as we read in Psalm 1, that Israel would be, even in Egypt, like a tree planted by streams of water, growing and bearing fruit. And for a while, that creation life is what they experienced in Egypt. But the goodness of creation and creation life isn't all there is. There's also the fall. And so life didn't stay that way for Israel in Egypt. Things actually went terribly wrong. And that starts in verse 8. Now, there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. This king who comes to power, this new pharaoh uh, in, in, in Egypt, we're never told his name. Uh, over, he's a major character in the book of Exodus. Uh, he's going to be a constant presence and threat. And yet, interestingly enough, he's never named. One of, I mean, this is literally probably at this time the most powerful man in the world from a geopolitical standpoint, ruler over one of the most powerful uh, empires in the ancient world. And yet he's never named. Uh, the author uh, names these two seemingly insignificant women, Puah and Shifra, but he never tells us the name of Pharaoh. What kind of story is this that names the small and out of the way and forgotten people uh, and yet leaves the most powerful man in the world unnamed? Well, I think one of the things that's going on here is that Pharaoh is not acting in a unique way here. He is doing what the rulers of this world do. You see, Pharaoh uh, is one of a type a type of figure that is going to show up over and over and over again in the biblical story. First, it's Pharaoh in Egypt, then it's Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon, then it's Alexander in Greece, then it's Caesar and Nero of Rome. These rulers who in their arrogance and idolatry set themselves up over and against God's people, who consider their own wealth, their own empire, their own accumulation as more important then their obligation as rulers to care for God's image bearers, and who consider themselves the ultimate authority and that they are unanswerable. They're not forced to answer to the God who made all things. And so Pharaoh's left nameless because it's Pharaoh today and it will be some other uh, dictator or king or ruler some other day. You could say uh, that from the perspective of the Bible, Pharaohs are a dime a dozen but Shifra's and Pua's don't come along very much. And so Pharaoh goes unnamed in this story. But what we're told is that he doesn't recognize Joseph. He forgot about God's provision of Joseph, God saving, his, uh, saving Egypt through Joseph's wisdom. He forgot about loyalty to Joseph. And so he says, verse 9, Pharaoh said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. 
Look, Israel here, uh, again, Exodus is going to have much to say about Israel's sin as we go. They are not special to God because they are sinless, right? They're special to him simply because of his grace, uh, because of his freely given love and mercy to them. So, but this section is not focused on Israel's sin. Instead, it focuses on Israel as the victims uh, of injustice, right? That, uh, and I'm not going to dwell on this because we spent so much time in 1 Peter talking about this, but that the New Testament has a, in the Old, has a clear teaching that the, the spiritual forces of evil, what Paul calls the principalities and powers ruling over this present evil age, oftentimes work through the, the, the sources of political power and rule in order to pervert and to twist justice, in order to uh, wound and mar the image of God so that nations and societies, instead of valuing and protecting the image of God, actually turn on it and crush it underneath uh, the wheels of their own power and the wheels of their own agendas and ambitions. And so we see happen here what was once a, a national setting in Egypt that was conducive to the flourishing of the image of God, now become one that is hell-bent on, de on destroying it within Israel. We see this fall from justice into injustice, from flourishing into destruction and into dehumanization. And so we want to look at what, is that, what shape does that take here? Because I think we can, and, and, and Christian theologians often have, look to uh, the state of Egypt over Israel uh, as a paradigm for how government goes bad, for how society turns dehumanizing and destructive. And the first thing uh, that we need to see is that the fall into injustice here is triggered by fear and insecurity. Look, what starts as, a, from, as Pharaoh uh, condemning Israel to slavery and ends with him ordering what can only be called a genocide, wiping out a people by wiping out uh, their male children, Right, This spiral from slavery into the bottom itself of genocide starts not with hatred. It starts not with anger. It starts with fear. The most powerful man in the world ruling over the most powerful empire in the world. And yet it starts with fear. Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Yeah, really? This small group of people that we're told came in as 70, it's probably reproduced now by a couple of generations. You think they are too strong and too mighty and pose an existential threat to the nation of Egypt. And yet that's his fear. His fear is, he gets into it uh, in verse 9, they're too many and too mighty for us. Verse 10, uh, let's deal shrewdly with them lest they multiply even more. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies, fight against us and escape from the land. Right, his fear was that they weren't true Egyptians, right? That they weren't loyal Egyptians. And so he says what uh, countless rulers have said over the years, which is, you know what? These people aren't really part of us. And Egypt is for the Egyptians, and these people are Israelites. And so we have something to fear in the midst of tension, in the midst of war, 
because their difference will turn to their lack of loyalty, which will lead to them turning against us. And so he enslaves them. One of the ways that human society falls and is marred by sin and in which the image of God suffers loss uh, and dehumanization is when societies begin to divide themselves over the true citizens who belong and those who don't, right? And in different states and different places have done this in, in probably thousands of different ways since the beginning of history. But when a society begins to think to themselves, we don't have to pursue the rights, justice, and flourishing of all of the people who live within our land, but can focus on the ones who are truly a part of us and those who aren't. Friends, terrible things happen. Most of the worst uh, atrocities of the 20th century have started when somebody says to themselves, you know what, Egypt is for the Egyptians and the Israelites are merely a problem to be dealt with. It happened in the 1930s in Germany. Germany is for Germans, not for Jews, uh, not for gypsies, not for the foreigners in the land. It happened in the late 20th century in Bosnia. Bosnia is for the Bosnians, not for the Croats. Rwanda is for the Hutus and not for the Tutsis. We see it today. It's going on around the world today. There's a, there's a huge uh, issue in China where China is for the Han and not for the Uyghur. India is for the Hindus and not for the Muslims and not for the Christians. And so as Christians, we ought to always distrust and fear and work against when people begin to talk this way, that certain people are insiders and other people are not, that certain people are worthy of the protection of law and other people aren't, that that's what happened in Egypt it's what happens all over the world today. We have to acknowledge that, that this is a, a, um, a scar in our own national life, right? That, that in our own lives, in our own history as a people, there have been times where we've defined who is and is not a true American, worthy of the protection of law by the color of their skin. And we have to acknowledge that that unhealth that happened back then uh, continues to affect us, right? In so many ways, we're trying to heal from that original poison even now. That ought to make us vigilant. It ought to make us determined to choke out this form of evil in our land. But it doesn't just happen with a kind of ethno-nationalism as we've described. It also happens on an ideological level, doesn't it? Right, that we, when we begin to think that certain people belong as real citizens and others don't, that certain people can be counted on and others can't, uh, that's the same dynamic when, when taken to an ideological place uh, that caused the French Revolution, for instance, to end up in a constant cycle of bloodshed. Everyone always suspicious uh, that their neighbors held counter-revolutionary ideas, that they couldn't be trusted in the new nation. It's what created the gulags of the Soviet Union, a constant fear uh, that those who believe differently, live differently, think differently, are a threat to the common life of the nation. There's often, and, and there's some real fear in our own society as to whether or not uh, certain ideas and those who hold them will be viewed 
is not belonging within the bounds of our, our nation, within the bounds of our society. There's, there, there's real fear oftentimes, even among Christians, that some of our own beliefs, right, beliefs about the exclusive claims of Christ and his right to, to order our lives morally and ethically uh, will lead to us being increasingly held on the outside of our culture and of our society. And those fears are real. But friends, remember this fall into chaos began in fear. Fear cannot be uh, what we allow to control us uh, in our life together and in our life in this world. Uh, we weren't redeemed by Jesus to be slaves once again to fear. We weren't given a spirit of fear. Fear is not the proper motivation uh, for us in pursuing our common life. And there is much uh, that is working to play on our fears right now. Right? We're just ending a political season in which two conventions, um, if you watched either of them, were both playing to our fears. We're both playing to the worst fears of the people that they think are likely to vote for them. Both were saying, we're the only ones who can protect you from your fears of being an outcast, of being uh, cast aside. And as Christians, we need to remind ourselves that fear is not our motivation. And so the people of Egypt go from there, from this uh, enslaving move, and it goes a step further. Their fall doesn't stop with enslaving the people of Israel. But it goes even further to seeking to kill their children. The plan is simple, if barbaric. It's to take the male children of the people of Israel and to kill them as soon as they're born. The idea being that we can continue to enslave uh, their daughters uh, over time, we can intermarry with them and bring them into our society. But as the men of their society die off, eventually Israel itself will die away and no longer be a threat to us. And so Pharaoh orders the death of every male Hebrew child. This is the depth of depravity the depth of darkness and chaos and sin uh, that a nation is capable of, right? There's, there's a, a parallel chapter to this one uh, that serves in much the same way, right? You can't read this story of the killing of every firstborn uh, and not think about Herod's order uh, at the beginning of the gospels that every male child born uh, should be killed in his effort to snuff out the life of the young Messiah. Right, So in two different instances, when the Bible is describing the actions of an idolatrous and wicked state, it describes that as the destruction and killing of infant life. We've said that a just society is focused on the protection of the life of the image of God, allowing that image to grow and to be protected and to flourish. And so just societies of, of all sorts focus justly on protecting the lives of children, right? It's one of the reasons that we pray uh, in our church on a regular basis for the children of our church, for the children of our city, for the children of the world, that a more just society protects and nurtures the life of our most valuable and vulnerable, which is the life 
of children. We have to say that this is why Christians today and throughout history have fought for the lives of both unborn and newly born children. Right? I think in our, in our current political climate, this can feel like a culture war issue. Right? This can feel like it started with the passing of Roe v. Wade in America, or it can feel like it's a platform issue for a kind of a 1980s moral majority, Christianity. But friends, Christians did not begin caring about the lives of children uh, in the 1960s, the 1970s, the 1980s, or the 2020s. Christians, uh, your ancestors in the faith were picking babies up off of Roman garbage heaps in the first century. Christians, uh, your brothers and sisters in the faith were taking unwanted Chinese baby girls from the trash heaps of China in the 20th century under their one-child policy. And so this, this isn't uh, a political issue to be used to drum up support for one side versus another side. This is about the Christian conviction that the image of God is worthy of protecting, that it's worthy of fighting for. And it's from a tradition that doesn't locate personhood or the dignity of the image of God in a person's capacity. What does that mean? That means that you were a person fully uh, endowed with all of uh, the potential that you carry, the ability to live and to love and to do and to, uh, to live a full human life, that all of that is in you before you did anything that it was there in you from when you were put together by God. And it remains in you long after you lose your usefulness to society, right? This is why Christians also vie for the dignity and worth of the elderly and of the handicapped, right? That when society turns its back on someone and says they are no longer capable of human life in a meaningful way, Christians should be those who say, no, 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 no. This is an image bearer of God, right? This is why you look at all of the people that society says are less than human. And Christians have historically said, no, 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 that, those people are worthy of human dignity. It's why Christians care about prison reform. It's why Christians visit the prisoners. It's why uh, our, ch our church so enthusiastically partners with the juvenile justice ministry as we go in uh, through Chelsea and her wonderful team of volunteers, to take kids, teenagers that most of society has said may not be worth loving, may not be worth investing in. You're just, you're just throwing it away. And said, so, no, 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 these are image bearers of God, and they're worthy of protection. And yet for Israel, that was not their reality. They were living under this horribly unjust rule, facing the extinguishing of their children, their own slavery, a murderous ruler who was working to try to snuff them out and end their very existence of, as a people. And yet in that situation, two otherwise unknown and anonymous women, but known to God and now recorded in the scriptures, Shifra and Pua, go to Pharaoh. And interestingly, we, there, this, there could be a whole sermon on the ethics of this. They tell a little bit of a lie right? Uh, they, uh, maybe there was some grain of truth in it. Maybe Hebrew women did give birth quicker uh, than Egyptian women. But uh, they engage in an act of willful, 
conscience civil disobedience, refusing the unjust act of Pharaoh. And why do they do this? Why do they have the courage to stand up to the most powerful man in the world? Verse 17, but the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them. They feared God more than they feared Pharaoh. Their eyes were on the true ruler of all things. They had the strength of their faith and the courage of their convictions to look at the most powerful person in the world and to say, you know what? You're not the most powerful being in my life. You are not the one to whom I ultimately have to swear my allegiance. You're not the one who ultimately holds the power over my life. Because it is a story of creation, and it is a story of fall, but friends, it's a story of redemption. It's a story of God working, the one who these women feared. The, ones, the one who, in fear here, doesn't mean uh, that they lived in terror of him, but simply that they lived in an awe-filled reverence of him. That they recognized that he was the one who commanded their lives. He was the one to whom they owed their obedience and their love. And so, armed with that, they're able to work to spare the lives of these Hebrew children. It's the courage of women. Moses doesn't show up for a little bit in the story of Exodus. He becomes kind of the human hero, but it starts with these two women. And then it goes from them into two other women that we'll look at next week. Moses's, uh, wife, uh, Mo- sorry, Moses's mother and his sister working to preserve his life. And friends, God used these women who had every reason to wonder if their lives had any significance at all. He used them to bring his redemptive plan to save many lives, to ultimately bring not only Moses into the world, but to bring the redemption of Jesus into the world. God used these women who had every reason to doubt if their lives mattered. And friends, I know you live with those doubts. I know when uh, the world seems to play out on the headlines of the news, when it feels like something new is happening every day and our heads are spinning, it's hard to actually believe that our small and ordinary acts of love and faithfulness make much of a difference. That our normal acts of loving our neighbor, of seeking peace, of speaking kindness, of choosing not to give in to our worst impulses, Right, This level of chaos, I, I feel it in myself. Right, It triggers our fight or flight response. The flight response says, oh, it's just too much. I want to get away. I'm going to go live on a deserted island. I'm not going to talk with people. People are what you know are giving me all this, this trouble. So I want to run away from it all. Maybe it's not a deserted island. Maybe it's I lose myself in mindless internet surfing or I, or I drink a bottle of wine or I, whatever it is that you run away from life to. That's the flight response that we feel. The fight response, uh, I don't have to illustrate for you a lot. It's vividly illustrated for you right now. That violence begets violence. That we live in a time of violence. Physical violence, right against left, left against right, escalating further and further. Physical violence, but also verbal violence. Right? We live in a world in which we speak harshly to one another, to where we demonize one another. But these two women hold up a way that your normal acts of neighbor love, loyalty to God, setting your eyes on him and letting him write your story, that it actually really matters 
in the, his redemptive work in the world. In fact, it's what will matter. The name of this Pharaoh is lost to our history. And yet the names of these women are remembered and worthy of valorization. But not just for their own sake. I love Jude, chapter, or Jude verse 5. And we'll end with this. Jude writes this. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt. He said Jesus is the one who saved his people out of the land of Egypt. Not Moses, not Aaron, not even these two Hebrew midwives. That It was Jesus who worked the Exodus. It was Jesus who brought his people to freedom. And he did it through ordinary people like these women. Can you imagine God can use your life, your faithfulness, your clinging to him and trusting in his grace and mercy so that he can actually do his work through you? That you would be the one who had said at the end of the day, you know what, it wasn't Dave's love or faithfulness or courage, but it was Jesus through you. It was Jesus loving your neighbor. It was Jesus turning the other cheek. It was Jesus clinging to hope. It was Jesus who saves. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, as overwhelmed as we are by life, we turn ourselves over to you and to your care. Uh, Lord, we thank you that we don't have to guess uh, at what you're doing in the world, that you are saving the world through your church. And so, Lord, we pray that you would guard us as your church, that you would protect our peace and our unity, that you would build us up in the grace of Jesus Christ, that you would fill us with every spiritual gift so that we can not only survive uh, these present days, but actually thrive in the midst of them. Lord, help us to resist the forces of polarization and hate that pull at us, the fear that eats away at us, but to instead walk in the way of faith, hope, and love. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information or would like to help support the local body of Christ Church in town, please visit our website at Christchurchintown.org.